amazed at your continued work as we have continued to study through the book of Luke. Lord Jesus, we are more and more in awe of your power, your nature, and Lord, that you don't, you give us simple answers. You don't leave us with vague, ambiguous direction, Lord, but you give us clarity in a concise way that we may understand and that we may respond as you have called us to. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in each of our minds and on our hearts. Lord, that we would understand what is occurring here in the text and that we would respond in a way that would be pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that my words would give you glory, honor, and praise because you alone are worthy of those things. And so, God, we ask for your help this morning. It's in your name. We pray and agree. Amen. So I want you to imagine with me that you are a first century Jew. I know that's hard to conceptualize, but we're going to give it a shot, okay? Imagine you're a first century Jew, but you are mute. You are unable to speak, and you, but you haven't always been mute. But for many years, this has been your reality. And inside you is this deep desire to speak, to tell your mom you love her, to tell your son you're proud of him. And you are frustrated with every encounter you have with someone else as you gesture, as you make faces, as you struggle to make sounds so that someone else might understand you. And you really, you feel like you're a prisoner in your own body, cut off from the rest of the world that you were created to have relationship with. And your feeling of imprisonment however, is not unfounded. In fact, your tongue has been bound by a demonic spirit who finds pleasure in your discomfort and your heart-wrenching pain. You know, being mute is one thing, but to have your tongue chained by evil is far more worse. And then you encounter a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus casts the very demon who has imprisoned your tongue out of your body. And you feel freedom. And you open your mouth and you speak. That's the context of our text this morning. And I can't help but wonder, church, what did he say? What came from his lips? What would I say? What would you say? Maybe, thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. I was bound, but now I'm free. And the text says that the people that were around when this happened in Luke eleven fourteen, that they were amazed. That was their experience. But we can be amazed at things we don't agree with, can't we? Think about whatever side of the aisle you're on for the last eight years, your politics. I'm sure you've been amazed at things you didn't exactly agree with, with whatever side you fall on. That's kind of what's happening in here. This is a story where bitterness is tasted along with the sweet. 
And Luke locates this story right after the Mary and Martha encounter, right after the Lord's Prayer discussion. And all of these stories, these previous stories we've worked through over the last few months lead to questions that must be answered. Questions like, why would one sit at Jesus' feet? Or, why should I adopt the same attitude reflected in Jesus' distinctive prayer? Or why should I pray for others, interceding for others? Why? Or what gives Jesus the right to form these groups of followers instead of everyone else? And our story in Luke 11, 14 through 26 gives us this answer. The only logical deduction we can make from Jesus' miracles is this. Jesus is God. The Father is working through the Son, who is in turn bringing about the kingdom. He's bringing victory over sin and death and judgment. Therefore, Jesus' miraculous work signals this heavenly breakthrough of the kingdom of God brought to earth with authority and power. Amen? Or more simply, Jesus' work forces us to make a decision about who we believe him to be. You see, church, Jesus both divides people and unites them. This story is really a tale of two houses and two rulers and a decision that we must all make about where we will live and who we will serve. And the first house the text alludes to is the house of, of evil, who we can um, ascertain is ruled by Satan. So look with me at verses 15 and 16. It says this. So in response of this demon being cast out of this mute man, him speaking, amazement's being experienced by all. This is our first response to that. But some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. A sign from heaven. You know, I was once meeting with this gentleman who had recently retired out of the Marine Corps. And he was really struggling with transitioning into the civilian sector. And the way he had responded to this transition, which was very hard on him, was in alcoholism. Um, he would turn to the bottle in order to try and cope with the feeling of loss of purpose and an abandoned identity which he once placed in the core. You may know someone who has struggled with something similar in your own context. But this guy that I was meeting with happened to be related to a good friend of mine. And this good friend of mine what you need to know about his past is that he lived a very rebellious and destructive life. And the thing about my friend was that I had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. What was unique was he was God placed him in a position to hear the good news of Jesus. And he responded in faith, saving faith, as he heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And it, y'all, it changed him. The anger that ruled his heart melted off his body, and everyone in his life could see what was happening 
whether they believed it was from God or not. So fast forward. This guy I'm meeting with just got out of the military. He himself watched his family member, my friend, change before his own eyes in a miraculous way. A man who is destroying everything to a man experiencing life like never before. And so he was skeptical, curious, suspicious, probably synonyms we could use for what he was feeling. And he was sent to me. And after we talked for hours, this guy was too presented with the good news of Jesus Christ. And he had even seen what Christ can do in a heart. And he had heard the truth for himself. But his response was this, skepticism. And he would outright reject Jesus. He was amazed at what he saw in the change of his friend, but would reject Christ based out of his own hardened heart. So the first response that we see of encountering Christ in Luke eleven fifteen is that of skepticism. And I really believe there's kind of two forms of skepticism here occurring in the text. One, of course, is an outright rejection of who Jesus is. Second is a, um, a desire that demands proof. That's the next form of skepticism we see in the text. So let's deal with the first. And it is this. They said he drives out demons by who? What does the text say? That is Satan. He drives out demons by Satan, empowered by Satan himself. That's what they reject Jesus with. If someone is not going to see such a power like casting out demons as coming from God, then this is really about the only uh, uh, alternative to those who see supernatural activity in the world, that it must be from Satan, empowered by him. And according to the charge, what the people are saying is the power behind Jesus is not divine. It is demonic. And in fact, it is empowered by the ruler of demons himself. Beelzebul or Satan, the serpent. Essentially, they are saying, nope, can be God, must be Satan, without really using any logic to deal with what they're seeing, as Jesus will deal with later in the text. So that's the first kind of type of skepticism we see. The second type we see is says this. Yeah, maybe this could be God. Maybe it could be something else. Not 100% sure. So how about you give me a sign so I can really know? Does this remind you of any group in our culture today? It should remind you of agnosticism. And not an agnostic says there could be a God, maybe. I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know everything. But probably not. But I won't rule it out. It's a, it's a potential, right? It's a possibility. They effectively sit on the fence about God. And church, no decision is still a decision, is it not? It is. Agnosticism... And I think this is what the Bible, the case the Bible is making here in the text. So don't email me, okay? It's the Bible is saying this. So I'm going to refer you back to the verses. Agnosticism 
is a decision against Jesus. The house of evil is filled with those who have rejected Christ. Even if they simply sat on the fence, they still rejected him as Lord. And to not join Jesus is to hinder others from coming to God. And the house of evil is ruled by one one being, Satan. And Jesus has much to say about who Satan is in the Gospels. And it's imperative that we know this as well, because they're contrary to popular belief he's not some guy some red little devil with a pitchfork that's not who satan is described as in scripture in john chapter 8 verses 30 through 47 a great exchange is recorded where jesus explains a lot about himself about who satan is and what people do according to who rules them so here are some things john chapter 8 says I'll give you the verse citations for you to look up later. It says, Jesus says to those who have rejected him, verse 41, John 8, their father is Satan. Again in verse 41, that they do the same things their father does. Verse 44, they cannot listen to Jesus because they desire to carry out Satan's desires. And here's what he says about Satan. He is a murderer. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. That he is a liar. In fact, the father of lies. The originator of lies and falsehoods. That is who Satan is. That is who their father is. And they execute the will of their father. Jesus is making that case. Dear listener. To reject Jesus means, according to Scripture, to join with Satan. There's no middle ground in Scripture. You need to know that. I would be a hypocrite to stand before you and passively offer you a third suggestion. There is not one. This is the house of evil. But the text gives us another house to consider, to understand. To better understand this house, though, we must better understand its ruler, who is Jesus. So look with me at verses 17 through 23. I know it says 16 through 23. Oops. 17 through 23 says this. Knowing their thoughts. Everyone say, knowing their thoughts. He told them every kingdom divided against itself is headed for where? Destruction. And a house divided against itself cannot stand. It falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason... They will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons. He disarms him. 
all the weapons he trusted in, and he divides up his plunder. Anyone, pay attention, verse 23, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. This is what Christ says himself. The religious establishment's rejection of Christ in verses 15 and 16 were so insulting, so slanderous, so outrageous that humanly speaking, like if I'm going to be honest about what I would do if I heard this, humanly speaking, Jesus could have simply turned away and not said a word. The Son of God humbled himself emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, comes to earth to die and to save a people to himself, is being accused of being Satan. The blasphemy, right? But the first thing we learn about the Lord of this house is that he is merciful. Jesus addresses their slander he turned he declared absolute truth and even tried reasoning with them what we learn about jesus is that he cares about souls who are in peril he cares with his whole being about even the men who are calling him satan even the arrogance of the people demanding another sign from him as he is some puppet for them he turns with mercy and he engages them and corrects false belief systematically hebrews 5 2 says and we see this in this text that he meaning jesus deals gently with both the wayward and the ignorant he deals gently with them you know what that means it means he restrains his passions against them He doesn't fire them up. He engages them with truth. That is the grace and mercy of our Savior. And as these rejectors were standing on the edge of eternity and judgment, merciful Jesus would not let them go on without explaining to them exactly what they were doing. It says knowing their thoughts. There's these crazy theological terms, okay, out there. These words that are really big and mean very simple things. So I'm going to give you two, incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. What that means is that there are some attributes of God that are not shared with any other being. They're only attributed to God. God cannot share them. Only God could have them. Communicable means they're shared attributes like mercy and goodness, compassion. We can have those kind of attributes we give to others, right? We share with others that God shares with us. But we cannot, hear me, we cannot know all things. This is an incommunicable attribute. So what's really being said here in the text is that Jesus is omniscient. Jesus knows their thoughts. This is a claim to Jesus' divinity. On another aspect, there's an engagement over the Son's of these men who happen to be exorcists, okay? And these 
exorcists at the time believed that in order to cast out some demon, the rule was you had to know their name to do it. But Jesus, knowing all things, cast them right out, right? You don't need to shout some name. There's nothing binding Christ. No, we learn here in a second he is the strong man, right? And so here, Jesus, knowing all things, Jesus, God, omniscient Jesus, addresses the idea of whether he was casting out demons by the power of Satan. And his response is, this is my version, this is absurd. It's absurd. If Satan is divided so as to fight against his very own interests, how can he stand? Church, the evil one's a lot more smarter than that. Even he knows that won't work. And this kind of line of thinking is illogical. And Jesus points it out. And he even says about their sons that if you apply this logic to me, you have to also apply it to your sons. And they'll be a judge against you. Because you're not going to like that conversation at Thanksgiving, right? So, it's ridiculous. But there is one thing we can learn, church, from Christ's example. Of the house divided cannot stand. And this principle applies to any area. It is this. There is no house. There is no kingdom. There's no business, no army, no team, no movement, no church that can survive an internal war. Success depends upon unity. And who is the unifier? In the church, it is Christ. And when our eyes are fixated upon our Savior, all of the disagreements don't seem to matter as much, right? Because it is Jesus who bonds us and unifies us. And when we unify around him, the house is at peace. There's no war in the house. This is the practical lesson Jesus teaches us. So maybe we can pause and think introspectively for a minute. Maybe we can ask ourselves some good, hard questions. Something like this. Where is there division in your own life? Where is there division in your own life? Do you see your spouse as an obstacle to overcome? Are you a leader in your vocation? Where is there possible disunity? And how do you cultivate a culture of unity in that, in that workspace? Maybe ask yourself, is there disunity in my own spirit? Do I keep one foot in the world while trying to keep one another in Christ? Where in your life do you compromise on your faith? Christ, the Lord of the house, shows us in this text that he is merciful, that he is omniscient, and also that he is all-powerful. In verse 20, Jesus explains that he casts out demons by the what? What does it say? Finger of God. You know, there are only three places in the whole of Scripture this phrase is used. Exodus chapter 8 is the first place. And it's actually not even by the people of God who say it. It's by the magicians who served Pharaoh. As the plagues were coming down upon them, the magicians respond, this is happening to us by the finger of God himself. And I wonder what that finger was doing. It was freeing his people. That's what it was doing. The second place we see it is in Exodus 31. You probably have thought of this, the carving of 
the Ten Commandments upon the stone was done by the finger of God, the text says, which is the establishment of kingdom rules or laws. And here again in Luke chapter 11. So what should we understand from this? Is that Jesus is proclaiming this message. The kingdom of God has come upon you. The people were freed by the finger of God. The laws of the kingdom, the rules of the kingdom were given by the finger of God. I am casting out demons. I am freeing. I am causing dead people to come to life by the finger of God. The kingdom of God is upon you today. And there forces a decision about who you will trust. To paint a picture, Jesus tells a story. He says there's a strong man who has weapons, and he actively guards his estate, right? Then a stronger man comes. He attacks him, overpowers him, and takes his weapons, disarms him, and takes his estate. And Jesus, of course, is making the case that he's a strong, the stronger man than this strong man. Kind of reminded me, y'all, I like, I like to watch uh, uh, Guilty Pleasure here. I like to watch Fighting. Okay, uh, I like particularly like UFC stuff, but a couple of weeks ago there was a big boxing fight uh, match between two heavy heavyweights. One guy Deontay Wilder, one guy Tyson Fury, and Deontay Wilder is known as like the bronze bomber. This dude, like forty nine fights, all knockouts, like two fights his whole career, not a knockout. Big punch, right? Strong man. Everybody went to sleep on that canvas except Tyson Fury, the Gypsy King. What a cool nickname, you know? What would y'all call Steven and I? I don't want to know. Probably probably bad. <laughs> probably not so cool. But the Gypsy King, right? This man is 40 pounds heavier than the Bronze Bomber, Deontay Wilder, leans on him, touches him up, and shows him how to box, takes him to school. Takes his belt from him when he knocks him out the first time. Get a rematch. Guess what happens? Knocks him out again, 11th round. No sweat. You're not getting this belt back. That guy's career is done, to be honest. Jesus is the stronger man. And this is what he does when he overcomes. Whether that be a demon-possessed person or your dead, hardened heart. When he chooses to, he will overcome every time because he is all powerful there is no limitations to his power jesus has said all he needs to say he is god he's all-knowing he's all-powerful he's merciful he's patient he's good we learn from this text and so now a decision must be made right because we get verse 23 which says, anyone who is not with me is against me. Anyone who does not gather to me scatters away from me. Fork in the road. Look with me at verses 24 through 26. I think it will make more sense. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest. And not finding rest... It then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. 
Then it goes and it brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there and have a party. That's I added that, sorry. As a result, the person's last condition is worse than before the first. The late David Gooding once said about this text that God's finger was touching them. Touching who? The slanderers. He was touching them. God was speaking to them. And what they had just witnessed was a direct, unambiguous demonstration of the Holy Spirit, demonstration of the power of God. A bonded man freed. And now they must make life's ultimate judgment, David said. And they were at the point of making a decision which once, he says, deliberately made would be irreversible and would make deliverance forever impossible. Reject the Holy Spirit, call ultimate good evil, and call truth himself a liar is where they were headed. You either gather or scatter, in or out, condemned or set free. There's no middle ground in Christ. But what about this group or that group? What about the innocent man who is on the island and he's never heard about God? What about that guy? Romans 3.23 tells us that that man does not exist. There is none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3 further expounds. No one is good. There is no one innocent. And so because of that, standing before a holy and perfect God, we all stand condemned. In fact, Romans 1 tells us that God has given us this knowledge of him through common grace, through general revelation, that we can look outside that window and say, there is a God. And Romans 1 still says, we suppress that truth within us. We suppress it. Paul goes further saying that no man is without excuse. So we are all condemned apart from the work of Christ. And this is the fork in the road Jesus is calling us to. A decision to be made in or out. What if this person did good things? No. What matters is, did we know Christ? Did he own our hearts and rule them. Could you imagine again that mute man we started with in verse 14? Who had the demon cast out of him? Who tasted the benefits of Christ? Could you imagine if he tasted those benefits and turned and would not submit his knee to the one who freed him? I taste your benefits, but I don't want you. This is verses 24 through 26. This is the final example that Christ gives us. A demon cast out of the house. The house cleaned only to find it is not occupied. So the demon brings more friends to that clean house, and the person is, the text says, worse off. Church, Christ does not just clean you up. He must also live in your house. He must live in your heart. Deuteronomy 6 or 4, 4 through 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is what it means. This has always been the imperative to God's people that He is to own all of your heart, not just some. 
There is no middle ground. This is what it means to join him. To gather with him, you must, like James 4, 7 says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Because the stronger man is your Lord. Because your father is God and not Satan. When you submit to the Lord, you are adopted as a son or a daughter of the Most High King. Amen? And you can resist the evil one. But how often do we say, thank you, Jesus, for cleaning up this part of my life. But I would like to now fill my heart with something else. Jesus, thank you. But I would rather be a slave to, like Colossians 3 says, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, desire, greed. And all these things are idolatry. I'd rather be a slave to those things. And what we really are saying effectually, functionally, is I would rather be a slave to Satan. Thanks for cleaning up my heart. Where's my old father? There's some tension here, y'all. Some good, healthy tension. Tension is good because it brings us to a place where we have to make Authentic decisions. Not ones coerced. Ones that are real here in your chest. Which evidence to you whether you are not, whether or not you are regenerate. Whether you know Christ or do not know him. And we have to think deeply about our hearts so we can ascertain this. So let me ask you it this way. What aspect of your heart have you not submitted to Christ? What aspect of your heart have you not submitted to Jesus? Choose today. Who will rule your heart? Choose today. There is no middle ground. There is no sitting on the fence. And if you choose the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to remember a verse. Write it down. Galatians 5.1 For freedom... Christ has set you free. Stand firm so that you don't take back up a yoke of slavery. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery again. Christ has made you free. Stand firm in your freedom. He has cleaned your house. Let him rule your heart and live in your life. And, and walk, out, walk that out with your kids with your coworkers, with your spouses, with your friends, in your church. Freedom, benefits of Christ are to be tasted and experienced daily. Amen? Now, if you don't know Christ, I hope you leave here today knowing this. Christ, Jesus, is God. He is God, fully God and fully man. And there is no other way to salvation except through Jesus Christ. And so I implore you, while I pray us out of here, consider asking him to clean up your heart, to clean up your house, and then to come and live in it. Humble yourself under his mighty hand and ask him to rule over your heart. Let's pray.